Hello and greetings, and welcome to another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. I'm Ethan, so glad that you've joined us. Thank you for the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known through the Hebrews author. We continue in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we now turn into what we call Hebrews chapter 13, we always have to remember that the chapter and verse markers are later and many times artificial and can sometimes really uh, not help us understand what's going on. But there is very much here a contextual disruption to some degree and of such a sort that some have suggested that in fact what we have as Hebrews chapter 13 is really not even part of the Hebrews letter at all, something added on to it. Um, you have all kinds of interesting theories out there, one of which would say that, in fact, Hebrews 13 is really the uh, letter to Paul from the, to the Corinthians that uh, uh, is, is kind of hinted at in certain places. Uh, but there's no really good reason in the end to consider it to not be from the Hebrews author. We see the same themes that are working through here as throughout the rest of the letter, uh, the way that he's interlacing exhortation of Christians with allusion to the Old Testament, like we can see already in verses 5 and 6, are very much consistent. Uh, the rhetorical uh, ability and posture is the same. Um, there's no reason to suggest this is in the Hebrews author. But it is important to note the subtle contextual shift because the Hebrews author might well be kind of ending his sermonic aspect of what he's been doing. Uh, we've been noticing throughout that it doesn't really sound like a letter. Uh, in fact, this is the first section that has really started to sound like a letter, where we have this series of exhortations that's provided in a very succinct way, uh, one thing after another, where we can see where there are some connections perhaps, but that uh, the definitely not as um, contextually expansive as, for instance, we've seen throughout the rest of the letter. Uh, so this might be the kind of exhortations that would come at the end. And, and really, uh, what we're seeing here is very much an important part of what's been going on. We could even look at everything that's come since chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, as this whole uh, kind of providing that, the paradigm there. Let us draw near with a f true heart and full assurance of faith, could well describe chapter 11, um, to... Um, hold fast a confession of our hope without wavering in chapter 12, and how to consider just how to stir up one another to love and good works, very much in evidence in chapter 13. One of the things that Hebrews author has been doing as he's been going through these examples of faith, and he's been talking about the warnings and the that he's been given, that you don't grow weary, that you don't fall away, is that honestly they're still a little abstract in the sense that he's been talking about these general movements. And for good reason, because he's concerned about the issue behind the issue. He's concerned about the hard issues. He's concerned about the wavering in faith that the, the audience might be experiencing. But there's still that need to say, okay, if you're going to remain steadfast and firm in your faith, if you're going to 
stir up one another love and good works. How do you do that? What does that look like? And Hebrews chapter 13 goes a long way of showing us in many ways what that kind of looks like. And he begins right out of the gate with a very important one. Let brotherly love continue. Um, some translations will go so far as uh, brotherly love must continue, making it a mandate. Uh, brotherly love, yes, Philadelphia, um, that the love of, of one another. Uh, and of course, this is one of those hallmarks throughout the faith. How are you going to, as a oppressed, persecuted mi per minority community, uh, where you have uh, all the pressure of society bearing down upon you, you're only going to make it and be sustained if you care for one another, if you love one another, if you uh, create that cohesive bond. Uh, John 13, Jesus will say that the new commandment that he gives to the disciples is that they would love one another as he has loved them. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, we've, we often comment about that beautiful uh, portrayal of love there, right? That God is love. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, right? All these wonderful lessons we have about love from 1 John chapter 4, and yet it's bracket, beginning and end, love one another. And, and John's whole point there is to say, uh, it, how can you say that you love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your brother whom you have seen? And really trying to emphasize the importance of loving one another. And it's one of those things, all of us say, yes, we need to love one another. That's not something anybody's going to dismiss or discount. But there's a big difference between loving one another in the abstract, or loving the idea of people, and loving actual people. And the Hebrews author, of course, is wanting this love of actual people in their complexity, in their flaws, in their difficulties, in their obnoxiousness. Uh to accept one another so that one another, each of everybody can belong and everybody is able to be encouraged is is fundamental and so that we absolutely that brotherly love must be uh, first and foremost and that's why it's first mentioned and then another very important mandate to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for uh, by this means some have entertained angels uh, without understanding or knowing it uh, hospitality to strangers uh, we have this idea here uh, is the Greek uh, philoknexia, uh, which is to be hospitable, to uh, show love to the stranger. And hospitality must be well defined here. Hospitality is to welcome somebody into the place where you live and provide for them meals and also a place of rest. Uh, we could add on to it in the ancient world here that it is also... Um, to provide for somebody as they leave. So you're making provisions for the person on their journey. Uh, this is a time and place in which, uh, yes, there are inns, but inns are famous for their debauchery. Um, the parallel we can make is imagine a world today in which we don't have nice hotels. All that there are are people's houses or the very sketchy motel-type places that most of us uh, would, would want not to be anywhere considered or associated with. And so uh, in that kind of context, and especially, again, a, a group of people who are uh, often have a pressure society placed upon them, are oppressed and persecuted, harassed in various ways, uh, travel becomes all the more dangerous, and the need exists to be able to uh, have places to go. Um, this is where it's very important for Christians to keep one another and welcome one another. And yes, 
if somebody knocks on your door and needs something, Christians should be welcoming and hospitable as much as they are able to do that. Um, and so, yes, this is not denying that there should be hospitality to those who are truly strangers, not in the faith, uh, those in the world. There should certainly be hospitality toward them. But we can understand the Hebrews author's primary concern as fellow Christians, as kind of commentary there on that theme all the way back from chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And um, the reason that he gives is a powerful one. I mean, Peter encourages hospitality in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. Paul encourages in Romans chapter 12. The Hebrews author adds this little flavor that uh, by this means uh, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Most likely having in mind Abraham and Lot from Genesis 18 and 19, in which Abraham sees three men coming, and uh, unbeknownst to him, but known to us, is that they are actually Yahweh and his angels. Uh, and then Lot comes into town and sees two men in the square and brings them to his house. And the two men, of course, are angels. And both of those examples are very important because it shows that Abraham welcomed the people who had come to him, right? But Lot saw people in the town square in a position of need and welcomed them also. That it's not just those knocking on your door, but those that you can see in the community who are in need. And the whole idea that you've entertained angels unaware is that if you knew who they were, you would have certainly welcomed them into your house, right? Now, this goes back to Matthew 25, where Jesus is pointing out that the goats did not provide for him in need, and the goats are just astonished. When did we see you in need and not provide for you? And Jesus says, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so you've got that uh, compelling portrait that you don't know who you are or are not helping when you see somebody in need and you decide to help them or not help them. And so this is the uh, Hebrews author extra motivation to provide that hospitality, to provide for those in need, because you just don't know who you're serving. You don't know where that's going to go. He then says to remember those in prison as though in prison with them and those mistreated since you are also in the body. Uh, some very important things. Contextually, we need to remember what Roman prisons are like. Uh, they're not very fun places. But whereas today, uh, if you are thrown into prison, you're given meals and a certain standard of living. In the Roman world, that didn't even exist. Uh, the only way somebody would be supported is if uh, somebody brought them food. And so if people are in prison who are Christians because of trumped up charges against them because of official persecution or harassment. Uh, the only way they're going to survive literally is if other people come to provide for them. And we can imagine situations where Christians may be reticent to do that because of course, if you are going to help your fellow brother or sister in Christ in need, uh, you are identifying yourself out there as being associated with them. Uh, just like most of us don't really want to hang around prisons today, so it would have been also in the ancient world. Uh, it's not exactly a great thing to have a friend or associate in prison. And therefore, you could understand the stigma and why you might want to create some distance. But that distance is going to be deadly for those who are in it. And that's where uh, there's the as if you were in prison with them. Because if you were in prison, you would want others to provide for you. And early Christian testimony uh, is very much about how Christians provided for one another in need. Uh, we have some ancient examples of somebody who uh, went and um, pretended to be a Christian for a while, and act to the point of even being thrown into prison, and astonished at how many Christians came to provide for him and how many resources he was given uh, because of his stand and because he was in that position, and how some of the Christians usually influenced the head to try to get him out. 
Um, so even the pagans could see how Christians would try to take care of one another when they had found themselves in prison. And the same with those being mistreated um, by the system, by, by, by whatever situation. Uh, we could maybe even expand that a little bit, um, that those ill-treated, those going through all kinds of difficulties. Uh, very important psychological issue is that it's very easy for us to want to um, create some kind of separation. That if certain people are going through bad things, we want to say that they're going through that because they've done something or are something different than we are. And, and that's a psychological phenomenon. We're trying to create that distance to tell ourselves why it's happening to them, but it can't happen to us. And the, the Hebrews author's whole point in the way he's explaining this uh, Remember the prisoners as if you were in prison. Uh, remember those being treated badly as though in the body, as a person who is human and also could endure ill treatment. As a remember, reminder of the opposite psychological phenomenon. No, 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 no. You are more like them than you care to admit. You could just as easily be in jail. You could just as easily be mistreated. You cannot create that defense mechanism and glorify God. You need to break that defense mechanism down so that you can provide the appropriate care and, and compassion on others uh, to glorify God. Yeah. Because again, if you were in that position, what would you want others to do for you? The next uh, point uh, absolutely fits in the context when we're looking at this again as how can the community work to stick together? Uh, again, that's been kind of the whole thing, right? How do these Christians love and build up one another? They need to show love one another. They need to be hospitable for one another and for strangers. They need to remember those who are in prison, those being mistreated, that they can't just jettison off those whom society is putting the most pressure on. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage be undefiled, that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Um... The marriage bed being marriage being held in honor can be seen as an exhortation or a statement, uh, either way, um, that it's a reminder that you know the marriage bed being undefiled a lot of times has been interpreted. This verse is often decontextualized and used for a lot of different ways, and it's not that those ways are invalid, but it becomes very easy to say that the marriage bed is undefiled. I.e., what two people do for with one another in that context is a, beyond the reproach of anybody outside of it and you, there's, there's there's something to be commended for that in looking at what the point of of those sexual relations are and and this purpose in marriage uh, but here the hebrews author is trying to say that let's keep the conduct in the marriage bed pure uh, that it's not what goes on in the marriage bed is pure. It's not saying that that is the standard, but that the marriage bed should be pure. That God is going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexually immoral is the uh, word porneia, uh, that uh, porotero por here. Uh, sorry, not porotero. Uh, that you know, these are the people who are uh, uh, doing things that are immoral and. Uh, the sexual morality that we see in the New Testament is um, very hard to talk about because there's no good English term for it. Uh, sexually deviant behavior is probably the, the, the clunky but most apt way of looking at everything going on in that word. Uh, the poor, those who are doing these things, the poor news. Um, 
And so it runs the gamut. Adultery isn't te technically included, so it'll be what we consider fornication, uh, sex outside the realm of marriage or before marriage. Uh, it would also include um, same-sex sexual behaviors. It would include bestiality, pederasty, all kinds of things like that. It's kind of a catch-all term for a lot of things going on there. And, and the idea that God's going to judge these people who are doing these things uh, is is a reminder of, of going back to chapter 10, chapter 6. Uh, yes, it, you can apply it out into the world, but the real immediate application are the Christians. That um, what will happen if a brother or sister in Christ is committing adultery with a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Uh, that will destroy churches. That will completely wreck what's trying to be done here. Because, again, we've got to remember that in this situation, you've got a lot of men and women who are in uh, a context where they're being harassed and persecuted. That creates a lot of shared experiences. That can create a lot of intimacy. And this intimacy is not inherently bad. You've got to have intimacy in relationship if you're going to connect. And Christians need to connect with one another. But that's why the Hebrews author says that marriage is to be held in honor. Let its bed be undefiled. Keep those boundaries. That you respect the marital boundaries even as you grow closer together as fellow members of the body of Christ, as the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And... It's a very apt warning, and it's really good to keep that warning in its proper context, which is in the church. Not that it doesn't have something to say beyond the church, obviously, but in the church, uh, that the, our conduct needs to be pure in relation to one another because there's so much at stake, and there's nothing good that can come when you get adulterous liaisons going on in the church because it's just going to completely disrupt and, and, and lead to betrayal and pain and distress, and it's going to divide. It's going to break. Uh, it's just not going to go well. Uh, that's why it needs to be avoided if we're going to really work for this kind of uh, relational youth with God and one another in a way that glorifies God. And also associated with that is to keep yourself free from the love of money to be content with what you have which is a message we see in many other places and again this is also to keep people from getting distracted from stuff to put their trust in stuff and the Hebrews author is very powerful in the way that he associates this uh, he again goes to allusions from uh, what has been made known previously and Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, that God will never leave you, God will never abandon you, and the appeal of Psalm 118, and in which uh, Yahweh is my helper, and I will not be afraid of what, will people, what could people do to me in verse 6, uh, coming from the Septuagint translation. Uh, and again, it goes back to, who do you trust, right? If we trust in God, we don't need to hoard. Because hoarding is saying, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I need to uh, have all this stuff so that I've got something if everything goes wrong. And so you're implicitly putting your stuff, your, your trust in the stuff that you have. What the Hebrews author is saying is, if you really believe that God is who he says he is, that God's not going to leave you or abandon you, you're going to trust that in that moment of need, God will provide for you. And therefore, you don't need to have all that stuff uh, stored up, so to speak. Uh, you don't need to, to put your trust in the money and what money can buy you. Uh, and you're okay with what you have. Because whatever you've got is enough because God has made it enough. And God will continue to provide, so you, need, you don't need to continue to hoard up. 
Um, now, is this a an appeal to have no possessions, to have no emergency provisions, uh, and, and to live um, paycheck to paycheck, so to speak? Uh, that is That would be taking it to a different extreme. Uh, there are ways that we can balance the fact that we need to be prepared in life for uh, basic emergencies uh, from the constant hoarding that we do, where we have much more of a cushion uh, and feel like we need an even greater cushion and then and putting our trust in that cushion rather than in a God who continues to bless us that f to make sure that the channel of blessing uh, continues to flow. That as God has given to us, we are giving back to him. We are giving to others uh, that we are OK with what we have, that we don't need to have and more and more and more and more and more. This is not to say you are a bad Christian if you keep three weeks of food at any given moment. Uh, but the question is, if you have three weeks of food and there's a moment of crisis and people are in need, are you going to help provide for them as well? Or are you just going to keep that for yourself? Where is your heart in that circumstance? And again, that's notice again that even in this very this section about this, uh, we're starting to get very practical. And even in the practicality here, it's still not necessarily trying to give you a this is what you do in every situation in a specific way. It's where's your heart? And, and what, what are you really trying to accomplish here? And it can be taken to extremes, and the extremes are often not very helpful. Uh, but we, that doesn't diminish the power of the point at hand and what, we're, what, what God would have us to do here. And so again, this is a very powerful beginning of these, these exhortations. We look forward to continue exploring them in verse 7 and beyond. Uh, and may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to do so.